hello again. We discussed last time the creating, saving nature of God and the destructive tendency in the people whom God created. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, sometimes called primeval history, recount in fascinating stories God's creative power on the one hand and human destructive force on the other. We see this downward spiral that begins in chapter 3 course like a polluted stream through chapter 4, Cain's murder of Abel. Chapters 6 through 9, the evil in the world that prompted God to send the flood and to start all over again, and chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. The purpose of this primeval history is to show us in non-scientific, non-historical ways how things began and how things got the way they are today. In other words, if things are rotten today, it must be the result of human, not divine, failure. Genesis 1-11 through is not nostalgic. When I was a kid in Catholic grade school, we used to moan to each other, if only Adam and Eve hadn't eaten that fruit, everything today would be perfect, meaning we wouldn't have to go to school or eat spinach. That was wishful thinking, a look back at what might have been if only. Genesis is not nostalgic or wishful. The author does not whine about what might have been. Rather, the primeval history of Genesis teaches and gives hope. It teaches that God is good, that God is holy, and God is different, far above the gods worshipped by the Canaanites and the other pagan peoples. Genesis teaches that human persons are good, created in the divine image, put in charge as stewards of creation, but also prone to misuse their freedom. Genesis teaches that people are the origin of sin in the world. Far from being nostalgic, Genesis pulls no punches. But this first book of our scriptures also gives hope in the face of sin. It shows God creating, planting, shaping a man out of clay and a woman from the man's rib. Then it shows human destruction of creation. God reacts justly but mercifully more than once. Even after the flood destroys everything, God promises never to use such measures against the earth again. God always seems to have the final word, and this word is promise. I want to begin this lesson with chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. The tower referred to in the story is probably a ziggurat, a Mesopotamian structure resembling a tower that consisted of progressively smaller levels, one on top of the other. Like a ziggurat, the meaning of this story has several levels. First, it simply tells the Hebrew reader the origin of the name Babylon, since Babel was the Hebrew word for this ancient pagan city. In Hebrew, the word Balel, meaning the he confused, sounds enough like Babel for the reader to make the connection between this story and Babylon. On another level, this account tells us how human language became diversified. It didn't really happen this way, of course, but the author wanted to show how the many human languages began, since the new human race would have come from the line of Noah and would have spoken one language as chapter 11.1 tells us. The whole world had the same language and the same words. On another level, a prophetic one, we learn about technology and the ability of the people to erect tall structures. This episode invites modern people to reflect on the use of our ever-expanding technological skills and where they may lead us if we don't use them wisely and humbly. Believing the sky's the limit is not always a good thing when it comes to genetic engineering and fashioning nuclear arms. 
This leads to a fourth important level of the story. According to Walter Brueggemann in his commentary on Genesis, the story of Babel ends with the people being scattered over all the earth, the very thing they were trying to avoid by building the tower in the first place. And then there is waiting, awaiting to see if Abraham will listen and be faithful to God. Says Brueggemann, The breaking of language at Babel is deep. There will not be a restoration of genuine speech and listening until the Spirit is given at Pentecost, like the first wind that blew to give life. It is a powerful story in more ways than one. It has a dark side and a bright side. The dark side of the Babel story is that it concludes primeval history on a negative note. The author does not say that God had mercy on the people who through pride had attempted to build a tower and make a name for themselves. The story simply ends by saying, from there the Lord scattered them over all the earth. On the bright side, this story can be read from the point of view of the Pentecost story in chapter two of Acts of the Apostles. What happens there as the Spirit enters the gathered disciples is the exact opposite of the Babel account. At Pentecost, the many pilgrims gathered from all over the world heard the disciples speaking their own languages. The Word of God came to them despite the diversity of their cultures and tongues. The key to the 11th chapter of primeval history is Genesis 12one to 3 The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your land, your relatives, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the families of the earth will find blessing in you. With the call of Abraham, primeval history ends and salvation history or sacred history begins. The primeval stories in Genesis set the stage. They let us know what's wrong with the world and the people who live in it. We've seen how people, in spite of a few good ones like Noah, have not gone along with the creative energy of God. How much more will God take from us? The incident of the Tower of Babel makes us wonder if there is a limit to God's willingness to start over. But then comes Abraham. This man and his wife Sarah receive a promise from God and then literally give birth to that promise in the form of Isaac. Abram, or Abraham, is the first really historical figure that we meet in Genesis. His call from God came at roughly 1,850 years before Christ. Who was this person we call our father in faith, this person with whom scriptural salvation history begins? He was the son of Terah from the land of Ur in Mesopotamia, not far from the Persian Gulf. With his father, his wife Sarah, and his nephew Lot, Abraham moved north to Haran. This migration took place, it seems, because Ur, once a dominant city, had begun to lose power. Some 500 years before Abraham left Ur, it had held sway over almost all of Mesopotamia. But invaders from the east and from the desert conquered Ur and deprived it of its subject lands. For the family of Abraham, it was time to go. Before their departure, Abraham and Sarah appear to have been semi-nomads in the land of Ur, living on the edge of town as shepherds, preferring the pastoral life to the city life. For this reason, it is possible that they acquired the name Hebrew, a 
a term that refers not so much to a race as to nomadic elements of the population that move from city to city. These so-called Hebrews sometimes served as mercenaries, a role played by Abraham in chapter 14. Interestingly, our father in faith came from a long line of pagans. In the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, we hear God speaking through Joshua. In times past, your ancestors down to Terah, father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and served other gods. Abraham had a personal history, and it helps to situate him in reality. It is important for us to know that the person whom God made promises was a child of his times who, when called by God, responded. Thus far, we've mentioned Abraham's history, but what about his soul? Wherein lies the essence of Abraham? Listen to a story told by Elie Wiesel, Jewish author and storyteller, in his book, Messengers of God. One day, the king of the Moabites summoned his personal counselors and asked them, Wherein lies the strength of the Jewish people? Why do we not succeed in destroying it? Its strength lies in Abraham, replied the counselors. Abraham, who is he? Their ancestor, the first of their patriarchs. But whatever did he do to deserve such power, asked the king. Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son to God, replied the counselors. And did he do it? No, it was only a test. Then I shall do better and be more powerful than he, said the king. And the Moabite king ordered the arrest of more than one man, more than ten men, more than a hundred men, and sacrificed them all to his gods. And he felt his strength ebbing away. He died without ever having understood. In the tragic end of one man, we see the essence of Abraham. What was mistaken by the Moabite king to be Abraham's weakness was really his trust, his faith in God. Abraham was ready to deliver back to God what he held most dearly, his only son, Isaac. Far from being powerful in the way the Moabite king wanted to be, Abraham could surrender to his God all that he ever had hoped for by saying, Here I am. Abraham was no pushover, though. He could surrender to God, but he also could give God a piece of his own mind. Another story from Elie Wiesel. In Sodom, there existed a law decreeing capital punishment for anyone offering bread to a stranger, a beggar, or a pauper. And yet, when Abraham learned that God was preparing to destroy Sodom, he came to its defense. He pleaded for divine mercy, saying, If you want only this world to survive, then there can be no law. If you want only the law to survive, then there can be no world. You are holding the stick by both ends. Choose one or the other, O God. Be less demanding, less intransigent. Otherwise, nothing will remain. Abraham is a bargainer, wheedling, cajoling God about the minimum number of just people that if found in Sodom would prevent the city's destruction. Why could Abraham surrender to, argue with, or bargain with God? Because he was God's friend. He took God seriously, and he took risks because of his relationship with God. Listen to these words from a poem by Father Edward J. Farrell in his book, Disciples and Other Strangers. Friends have covenants, said God, and we will have one too, he said. 
I am your God, and you are my own Abraham. The sign is in your flesh. And Abraham became the father of a son of Isaac. A hundred years of unspent fatherhood he poured all out on Isaac. There was no more counting stars for God's poor friend. He had the seed of all the flowers of earth. God had given Abraham his Isaac. And God watched Abraham with love. And later on he spoke. I am the pack rat God, said God, and now, Abraham, I want Isaac. But we are friends, and you gave Isaac, Abraham said. I know we are, said God, but I want Isaac. Till Abraham cried, the star is so countless, and the many sands, and you would still take my one son, Isaac. And God could only answer back, I want Isaac. And Abraham, because he was a friend of God, said, God, take Isaac. It was such a man whom God calls in chapter 12 and with whom God makes a covenant in chapter 15. In this man and his wife, Sarah, all the families of the earth will find blessing. Our Catholic liturgy calls him our father in faith. After Abraham's victory over a pagan king and his allies in chapter 14, Melchizedek, the mysterious king of Salem, blesses him with these words. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, the Creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your foes into your hand. The portrait of Abraham in Genesis is that of a well-to-do family man who is asked to pull up stakes and move to another land. Though he and Sarah are old, well past the childbearing age, Abraham does not think it outlandish to believe in a God who is new to him and to do whatever God should ask of him. Indeed, Abraham put his faith in the Lord, who attributed it to him as an act of righteousness. Taking his inspiration from this statement, St. Paul says in Romans, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body as already dead and the dead womb of Sarah. He was empowered by faith and gave glory to God and was fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to do. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is the progenitor of the Jewish people, as well as the first person to believe in the God above all gods, the first to trade in his belief in the gods he once served for faith in the one who is not ashamed to be called the God of Abraham. Because of his faith in the promise of a multitude of children, in spite of his great age and that of Sarah, in spite of all odds, Abraham found favor with God and became the father of Isaac, the father of Israel, the father of Jesus, the father of us all.